Hello there. This week, we talk about religion, arguments, and contradictions in the proof of God. We briefly touch on Aquinas' five reasons, and experiments such as Louis Pasteur's experiment and debate the various ways of proving something rigorously. We then discuss on the big whys, question the reason we do things, and the meaning of life. Hey, how are you, Don? Yeah. What, what, what you, uh, what, what's your reflection so far? You know, I, I listened to our previous uh, episodes, right? I realized that I don't really like how I sound. <laughs> what? Why? Why you don't? No, because, you know, when we talk like face to face or like through Skype calls, right? There's a lot of non verbal cues we have. So, like, oh, I would okay. keep saying, like, yeah, or like I do a nod or something, but it's not recorded in the, the file. So, it's slightly a different ballgame. And I, I also really use a lot of uh, slang. I don't really like how that sounds, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Did you start a new job yet? Yeah, no, yeah. That's what I was thinking. So, I just started a new job. Then, uh, one one observation I had is, it, okay, I have to be careful what I say because I can't really share much about the job. But, what was it? You know, they always say Singapore is very international and stuff. Yeah. So, I was at the, at my, I mean, my department, it's a bit like recess. Like, everyone, there's no set lunch. Everyone's busy, but they just see who is free, then just have lunch together, that kind of thing, in the office. I remember the first day of my first lunch, there were six of us, and there's only one Singaporean with me. So the rest of them were like not from Singapore, like not even born from Singapore. I mean, not even, maybe some of them studied in Singapore for uni, but some of them didn't even study. Like, so it's just really international. And one thing I found really difficult is, I mean, besides the slang part, right? Like, you can't really say certain slangs because they just won't understand. Like, for example, like, all the NS, uh, all the National Service Army talks. Yeah. Yeah. But the very difficult thing I realized is, uh, it's like, because you don't have any junctions in life that sort of cross. For example, if, if let's say you meet someone in NS, then you can talk about NS. Yeah, no, even like, though it may not be the same. I'm oh, sorry? You no like shared interests. Uh. Yeah. Honestly, not no shared interests. No common experiences. Interest. Uh. Yeah, but no common experience. So that was very difficult for me to, to talk about. Yeah, it's quite a quite a surprising thing actually. Because okay. I, I, I would think I'm quite good at talking to people. Just okay. like, <laughs> you can think, yeah. But it's really, it's really very different eh? when, when you have to talk to someone who like, have a different upbringing and it's hard it's hard to talk about things in detail or like have a intimate yeah, conversation because you don't have any shared experience or any shared uh, feelings about something yeah exactly how you doing again yeah so i'm i'm okay i'm okay at the bank how do i put it i'm doing like okay i'm not doing but as in i'm assisting a group in some math modeling thing wow. but i'm a scrub i'm i i literally don't know what's going on maybe just a grunt for the time being i want a grunt yeah <laughs> What's that? As you're just doing their dirty work. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I am just doing their, all their Excel sheets and stuff. Yeah, like, that's just like, normal. It's a tough yeah. life for undergraduate. Yeah. But they're very smart because like, their department is full of uh, math and statistics people. So, half the time, they're just... Wow, I don't know what they're talking about, man. But it's, it, I think it's quite engaging. Like, it's a lot more... Actually, working in a bank is not as intimidating as, as I thought it would be. Like, generally, people... It's quite nice. Okay, cool. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's quite friendly. Okay, so it's just a what, 9 to 5 job, right? Yeah, 9 to... No, I'm quite conflicted now because I'm still... I, I applied for a few of those uh, clinical assistant jobs, but they haven't really uh, replied me. And I'm just what like... You, what do you apply for? Being a what, lab assistant or clinical assistant, vaccination assistant, all that kind of thing. Oh, okay, okay. But like... <laughs> so I'm quite torn between like just trying a random job just for the fun of it. <laughs> Working at Starbucks. My, my, pers- my personal opinion is... I think, especially since you just finished army, just go and uh, enjoy life first. Uh. That's, that's what I did at least. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I don't regret it. I still, en- I, I, I still enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Of just course. wake up then. Yeah, but it wasn't fun because my sleep cycle was very messed up. But Your sleep cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's your sleep cycle messed up now. So. It's, it's not that bad. I'm sleeping about like one or two. 
Oh, okay, okay. No, but yeah, I'm starting to feel the boredom. I mean, like, think of things that you wanted to always do when you were busy, like, you know, in school, you always think, oh, if I free time, I'll do that. Then you just do that, like, always yeah, reading. Yeah, is it, I've been doing a lot of reading, but it's getting a bit repetitive now. <laughs> no, because, at least from my one week of working, I realized that working really, or at least the, the hours really suck. Because, uh, okay, yeah, so, you know, you have school, then you end around, like, I don't know, 4pm, that kind of thing. So, yeah. it's, it's not that bad. But, but then again, I would, I would think that, Technically, I still study until like 10, 10, 12, so I should be used to the working hours. But having to work until 6, right, means to say like, um, even if you study, and let's say, let's say after school at 4, then you study until 6, you'll feel like a bit of accomplishment because like, maybe not everyone is studying, but you are studying or you're yeah. doing something productive. Yeah. But, but having to work until 6, that's like a given. So most people like, are actually working until 6. Then they actually stay until like 9. Wow. So they go home at like 10, then they sleep, then they wake up at 7, come back to work again. So it's just like a, your, your freedom, your very little freedom in time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That makes sense. Yeah, which, which really sucks. Like, I want to understand now the adults always say, oh, enjoy your, enjoy. I mean, it's a cycle. Like, when, when you go secondary school, you say, oh, enjoy primary school. Right? But, but then again, I think the jump to getting a job is quite big because it's really like, uh, it's like, it's like an exponential, it's like an exponential increase in your, exponential decrease in your free time. <laughs> so it just gets worse. That's why I'm not so, enjoy, not so keen to get a job so soon. Yeah. Okay. Wait, don't feel the need to. La. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. yeah, but I'm feeling like some sort of pressure. La. No, la. what the hell. Just enjoy life, man. Go and do some art. <laughs> okay, what are we talking about today? Right, okay. So today, uh, we're going to be talking about religion. <laughs> a very, very loaded and contentious topic. Right? What, what are the first few questions that come in your head? Hmm. As in... I have a lot of questions that are very, quite personal also. But of course, everyone mm. grapples with like a lot of the big questions, right? Mm. Like, I'm, okay, uh, do you remember when we studied uh, Langlid? Yeah. Then we learned about yeah. Masot and the absurdism. Yeah. yeah. Who, who, is, who is Masot? Okay, basically Masot is the protagonist of this book called The Outsider. It's written by Albert Camus. And the main uh, tension that Masot faces in the book is with the society. Because... Masot displays a lot of absurdist ideals. So he, he doesn't believe in a lot of the constructs of the society. So for example, he doesn't believe in uh, religious institutions or like law, the political institution, you know. So he, there's a lot of satire going on. But basically the main thrust of like the, the outsider is that many of the institutions that we have in society today is just a construct because uh, it's just like to console ourselves in the light of the inevitable. So the only two certainties in life would be being born and then being and dying afterwards, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Actually, yeah, no, I, I was quite surprised that uh, I think we were we were fifteen years old, right? Sec three. When? Uh, what what means? When when they when they taught us this book? Are you sure? No, wait, no. As in, this was like, an IB text. Eh, oh yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So we were quite okay, lah. Uh, but I I remember thinking, why why would they give such a loaded book to a uh, I will still consider ourselves a child. Like, you know, quite, cause he, yeah. like, he talks about absurdism and uh, is it called absurdism? Yeah, absurdism yeah, yeah. and the meaningless nature of life. Yeah. Like, wow. It's quite so he's, uh, it's quite deep, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well how, how's that? What what made you think about uh religion? That? What do you mean? <laughs> like well, I mean just what what are some of the questions on the top of your head? Uh? Okay, uh basically uh because having a religion, right, is essentially having a faith and the faith means that there's a gap. So you have to take a leap of faith la, to actually believe something. So, I mean, the, the reason why it's a religion or it's a faith is because there's a lot of things that 
we, we cannot prove, right? It's all a very personal thing. So a lot of people have a lot of ways to try and prove that a religion exists, right? They, they have a lot of empirical reasonings and all that. And I don't doubt it, but sometimes I feel people go a bit too far in that direction. Like there's a reason why it's a faith, right? Because there's a, there's a reasonable gap that you have to cross. And that's, yeah. Mm. I, I think like all things is like the graph of the knowledge and expertise. You know, there's one graph where it shows like, okay, the people who understand a little only, then they think they're expert. Yeah, the Daniel so Kuno curve. Oh, what's it called? Yeah, the Daniel Kuno curve. Yeah. I don't know how you spell that, but yeah, sure. But yeah. you know, right? So that means after a while, uh, those people that think they know a lot, once they start to know a bit more, they realize actually they don't know anything. Mm. And only those people who are like, like professors or really spend their whole life to that, then they understand fully what, what is going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I think for I think we have different approaches to this because I tend to not be very personal. I, I don't I tend to be more find what is the concrete proof. So actually, okay, you didn't read my my notes, right? No, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so all my friends uh asked me to read this book called Philosophy of Religion by by I don't know who. Yeah, <laughs> I've been. Yeah, but it is at the start of the book it talks about um I mean it just gives context that this book isn't about religion. Uh, I'm not saying religion. It's not about it's not about faith, at least. It's about um okay, I sound I sound very wrong right now, but it doesn't sound very com- <coughs> um it's okay. <laughs> it, it, yeah, no, it's not about uh it's not about any specific religion, but it's more so about um the general idea of religion and the general idea of God. Okay, okay, yeah. So so okay, one one defining thing that makes this book I think good is because it doesn't talk about any specific religion. Not so even not even cyclic. Right? As a whole, yeah, so, whole yeah, so some books talk about religion and then they talk about specifically like oh, in Christianity or in Buddhism or like, that kind of thing, but what this book doesn't really talk about it at all. So it just talks about like the very logical arguments why is there a God and why is there not a God? They can't think. Uh, okay, wait, let, let me. I can't remember what it talked about, but okay, yeah, I only read the first chapter, so I really don't know much about it, but yeah, you can just talk through it. Yeah, I think okay, one of the things that I really took away from uh, the first chapter was that a lot of people like to question the nature of God because of the paradoxes. For example, if God creates a... Okay, it's called the paradox of the stone. So that means that is Okay, how the argument works is that you can talk about the attributes of God. So God being all-powerful, God being good, God, God being uh, all-knowing and self-existent. So these are like the few characteristics that uh, people define God to be. La. So um, there seems to be inconsistencies in the characteristics because, uh, for example, yeah, the paradox of the stone that if he creates something, because if God is, so the assumption is that God is omnipotent, right? It means he's uh, very strong and can do anything. Um, that means he's able to create a stone that is very, very heavy. A stone? Okay. okay. A very, very heavy stone. That means an uh, unliftable stone. But if he has the power to do that, and if he creates an unliftable stone, then how is he able to lift that stone? You get it? So yeah. there, is a, there is a paradox in that sense because if he's unable to lift the stone, means that he didn't have the power actually to create a stone that can be lifted. and uh, that means there's inconsistencies. La. And okay, normally normally people are just disregard or inconsistent, but this is like an ideological thing. Like it's not it's not limited by any physical uh limitations. So like this is just an idea. So you can say that about a lot of things. Um like for example, even math, does numbers exist without God? Because how how would how would the numbers uh how would cal- uh, calculations be different in I don't know heaven or yeah 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 or even okay the other thing that shocked me also was morality so for example I think one dilemma that I mean especially now talking about all those um the the LGBT movement I think that the main issue at the crux is about this topic about morality so that means and the first chapter talks about it so 
is um what what is defined as good is something good as a result of what God has given. So for example, like all those uh like for Christianity is the Ten Commandments or yeah. Um or is it or is there a good that exists without God? So okay. is there an innate nature of morality? Um and, and to me like the very logical thing is that whatever good is out of God. Because if you're it's like it's like a computer, what? like um you, you you set a computer to you design a computer to something, like you create something, and because you are the one that created it, you are the one that creates the rules, right? Yeah. So God created this whole existence. That means he must have created the rules. So it's kind of weird to think, yeah. But but the bigger concept is that I mean the bigger question we're asking now is that uh can morality exist without God? Hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and it's exactly the core of the issue of this uh LGBT uh, movement thing, right? Because everyone is conflicted. Like half of them are thinking, oh, okay, based on religion is wrong because they are coming from a point that God is the one that creates the rules, so we must follow the rules. And then the other half is like, oh, there's morality on its own. But then again, you see, back to the topic on the par- the, the contradictions and inconsistencies. Inconsistencies is that um, which is this not like, the morality thing? But the conclusion that the author wrote is that. Uh, okay, I can't remember where I wrote it, but essentially he said that some people use this as the argument to say that oh, God is uh, have the question about God because there's in, uh, inconsistencies. But his his conclusion is that it's still fine for God to be to exist because there are so many good arguments, too many good arguments that are God exists to address these inconsistencies. You just have to how do I say uh? Right. Okay. Like, okay. So, uh, whoever's listening to this, uh, do know that we are just throwing around a lot of ideas of our own. Some of them may not be factually correct. So please give us the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. Well, uh, yeah. Okay, continue. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I got it. So Aquinas is I don't know who he is, but he's some guy that always gets quoted on uh religion. So he said, whatever implies contradiction does not come within the scope of divine omnipotence because it cannot have the aspect of possibility. Hence it is more appropriate to say that such things cannot be done, that then that God cannot do them. So essentially he's saying that. We shouldn't talk about these contradictions because um it's not possible or but then again I can think there are cases where it's possible. <laughs> okay, sorry, the book started with a more trivial uh contradiction. So he just talks in general about things that cannot be done. Then because cannot God cannot do them, then uh it seems like it's powerless. So for example, you can play chess and God probably can win you because he like he knows all the moves and everything. Hmm. But God cannot win you after you he has been checkmate. Because that's by the very definition of being checkmate. You cannot win really. So like what? Sorry. Uh, like contradiction by definition, uh, essentially to say. That means like uh if let's say the guy checkmates you already, you can't win because he checkmate you. Okay, yeah, but uh so, so like assuming that you can go to the point of checkmating him, right? So aren't yeah, you so like uh, assuming that uh God will this this very this god that's very good at chess, right? He won't allow you to go to that point. No no no, that's, no, that's not the question. The question is uh, God doesn't have the power to win after he has been checkmate. So, yeah, so it's not about... It might be an irrelevant like abstraction because he may not allow you to go to that point, right? So No, no, no. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is contradiction by definition. Okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. So given a case... Okay, not let's say just, he's not playing a game. Just two people playing a game. He cannot let that person win after he has been checkmate. Yeah, okay. Because okay. by definition, he has been checkmate. Like, you can't do anything about it really. Yeah, uh, okay, but what, what, what use is this... Uh definition then because it proves there are some things that God cannot do okay and because he is, is, is he cannot do because it's by very definition so for example a bachelor can, he cannot make a bachelor not any bachelor but just the idea of a bachelor be married because the definition of a bachelor is someone who is not married yeah okay I, I do understand but 
I don't really see yeah. the of having this. Yeah, so that, that's what his argument is. Though. So because it, whatever implies the contradiction does not come within the scope of his, his divine omnipotence. Okay. Because he cannot have the possibility of doing so. So essentially what he's saying is he's used to talk about these kind of things. Uh. Yeah, I totally agree. It doesn't, <laughs> it, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't add to the... As in, it's a good thing to talk about. I think it's a, good, it's a good question to ask because it's, it's a... This, as in, when, when he creates everything, he must, have con- he must have considered that there are paradoxes. You know what I mean? Hmm. And, and maybe there is a reason for all these paradoxes. And maybe like, uh, I don't know, when we go to heaven or something, we will understand like, oh, how, how these paradoxes actually aren't that paradoxical. I don't know. Perhaps. Yeah. But you know, it's very funny because when we talk about definitions, right, or contradictions by definitions, it's, it's quite weird because we understand it through the language that we speak, right? Yeah. So, yeah, for the example just now, you just said about the bachelor, right? If you didn't have this concept of a bachelor, then there's no such thing as a contradiction of definition. Anyway, it's all very arbitrary, right? In a sense. Yeah, I was also thinking, is it because of the, what we are... Is it because we are just verbalizing it or is it is there a contradiction in ideas? That's why, yeah. I'm, I'm quite sure that it's because of language. And okay, but I'm pretty sure, undoubtedly, there are still contradictions in ideas. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. correct. Just that some of them are a bit more uh, trivial. <laughs> Yeah, actually, this is one of the okay. From what I know, what I understand, these are one of the better ways of proving something. I mean, in in math at least, proved by uh contradiction. So like, for example, okay, let's say you want to prove some. Let's say I mean, in a, in any given argument, uh, you're just talking to your friend or so. You wanna you want to uh maybe it's a debatable thing. So you wanna prove him prove that the thing is wrong, right? You can prove by contradiction. I mean, you say you assume that he's correct first, and then you work from there. You start assuming, 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 then you realize that it's wrong. So then you contradict his his proof. Then okay, but essentially you assume that the first argument is right first. Then you work from there, and then you realize there's a contradiction. So it cannot be right. Okay. Yeah. Like, okay. I mean, okay. It, it sounds okay. It sounds very it sounds very no brainer when talking about uh just verbally, but specifically for like math, you wouldn't you wouldn't write like one plus one equals to three something like that. But because it's just wrong, you, you know from the rest that it's wrong. But some proofs, uh, particularly in math at least, from what I'm reading, you have to go in that direction first. So that when you go into further equations, like let's say one plus one equals to three, then you go into further equations, you realize that it's definitely wrong or something like that. But you have to start with the basis first that is wrong. Okay. Yeah, so then you contradict yourself later. Okay, yeah, it's, yeah. A very, it's, a very, it's a very rigorous proof because you, you show that there's only one... Okay, I don't really know why it's very rigorous, but it just, it is very, it's much more rigorous than, uh, for example, proof by exhaustion. So that means you try to find every single argument that is... Hmm. I mean, in, in concept, I, I feel like proof by exhaustion is more rigorous though. It's just that that's the, the central problem is that you, you may not find every yeah. single facet where it's proven wrong, right? <laughs> no, it's the black swan thing. La. Yeah, as in, yeah, that's true. La. But I don't know, because when you prove it by con, it's like just one instance, right? But that, that one instance is enough to disprove the entire theory. Hmm. Okay, maybe I just give one uh, simple example. Okay, so I've been, I'm not explaining it, obviously, but what I've watched, what I've been uh, interested in is this thing called the prime number theorem. Okay, so you know our prime numbers, right? Like one, two, three. Two, three, five, seven, right? Sorry, not one. Yeah, two, three, five, seven. So you know what prime numbers are, right? Which is yeah. the numbers that are not, okay, I'm not sure it is, but from what I read, not one, but are not divisible. Yeah. Div- uh, divisible. So, um, I mean, okay, to make it sound more engaging, like more practical, you understand that the use of prime numbers are used in like for crypto, uh, what's it called? Crypto, okay. crypto. Crypto, not cryptocurrency, okay. Cryptography. Is that how you pronounce it? Cryptography. I'm assuming you're correct, lah. Cause I have no idea what it is. The code thing, lah. Encryption, lah. Encryption. Okay, okay, yeah. Encryption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they use prime numbers to 
Um, if I'm not wrong, so whenever you get the six digit, let's say you want to buy like something like Amazon, they say the six digit, right? So that six digit is the last numbers of a prime number, but a very, very long prime number. Mm. So like two to the power of two, 256, long prime number. Yeah. 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 And, and why, why they say this? Because it's the only number like, okay, I'm not sure whether I'm correct, but I mean, this is how I think, this is how I think it is. So they're sending the last few digits and then uh, because it's so difficult to compute this kind of thing and that's why they give you a timer. So like maybe like one minute to and, uh, put in the code. It's because it's so long and it's so hard to find that prime number uh, that is unique to you. La. So it's like, it's like a password. You get it, right? Yep. So, okay. That's just a concrete thing that maybe will be more engaged. But um, for the sake of it, this, this prime number theorem uh, has a proof by contradiction, which is why I'm talking about it. So initially, people didn't know whether there were infinite number of prime numbers. Because you would think, okay, for example, even, even within the start, it, it gets more rare and rare because numbers tend to have more factors really. So remember like 2, 3, then like uh, 5, 7, then 13, sorry, 11 first, then 13, and 17. But like it, the gap just gets a bit bigger. Yeah. But uh, someone gave a very easy proof is that, okay, first you assume that, first you assume that the prime numbers don't have a, don't have a, there's no more prime numbers. So for example, you just think about 2, 3, and 5, right? So then let's say 5 is the last prime number already. But if you add all those prime numbers and you plus 1, that is the prime number itself. So 2, 3 equals 10. 2, 3, 5 equals 10. Plus 1 is 11. 11 is the next prime number. And Ooh. you can keep on doing this. So it's a very, very rigorous proof because it's not just trying to prove that, okay, I found another number. And that's, that's one of the ways they've been doing actually. To actually, because once you reach like, very like a billion gazillion, it, it, it's, it's like a discovery, oh, I found a new prime number because that prime number is probably like very big. Okay, yeah. This guy proved it very, very simply because you just add those all those numbers together and you plus one, it's actually a prime number. So he proved that there's an infinite number of prime numbers. Just for a bit more, uh, a better grasp of how big that prime number is. There's, I think there's one guy who published a prime number. He published it size 11, I think. Font size 11. And, and it was like A5 size. It, the book was A5 per page. And it was like this thick. Okay, how do I say it? Okay, like one hand thick. Wow. One hand thick. Can you imagine how big that is? Okay, uh, that, that's quite insane. Yeah. So, so that, that, that's proved by exhaustion. But, so it's almost impossible. Like imagine you want, the guy, people still want to prove by exhaustion that there are, that there are a lot of numbers, right? The prime numbers. The computation will be like forever. But this guy gave a very, very simple and beautiful proof that like, that's it. Like, yeah, I get it. Add. Yeah, 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 that's why. Yeah, but just to be clear, is this uh, proof by contradiction or Yeah, because he assumed first that it's wrong. Oh, he contradicts okay. his statement that actually you see 2, 3, 5 equals 10 plus 1 is 11. Oh, okay. Because okay. you, yeah, you know that 11 is the prime number. So you contradict yourself. Okay, okay yeah, I can get on board with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Get it right. It's like essentially uh, proof by contradiction is uh, finding like some underlying concept. Yeah. I would say... It works because you you know your premises. I mean, you know, because I already know that 11 is a prime number. So I'm working with what I understand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. So more, more, uh, more practically, I'll say, let's say, if you're talking about argument, like a normal argument, not like a math argument, you can talk about things that you understand. So if let's say someone doesn't understand a, a perspective or a point, you can talk about something else, you know, and then use base your argument on the other, other perspective or the other situation. And then you prove by contradiction. You, you get what I mean? That seems a little bit far-fetched, but... No, as in like, for example, you are having a conversation and someone doesn't understand in that situation. So you just try to take a step back and refer to another situation. So you say, okay, what would I have done in that situation? No, as in, I don't really see how uh, using another perspective is an extension of the proof by contradiction. You know what, let's just continue. I can't... I, yeah. I need to 
I, I think this kind of thing you need to think of like actual situation in your life. Yeah, let, let's not get too deep into that. Yeah. So what were you talking about? We were talking about uh, morality, right? Morality, yeah, sorry. What else? As in, so, it, it, I think one related point is about that, that does evil and like, suffering really mean that uh, a god doesn't exist, right? Mm. What, what's your thought on that? I think you can uh, use the same uh, morality argument that you said just now because I, I feel like if you have a, a standard of what is deemed to be evil, right? I think this, this standard has to come from somewhere. Lah. And I think the, the, the problem of evil is not an argument against the reality of God, but it's actually an argument for God. Because uh, for anything to be good or evil, there must be an underlying standard of right and wrong. Lah. So a lot of people argue that this standard is rooted in God and his nature. Right, so it's kind of the same argument. No, that, that's the actual, actual same, same. I mean, it's a, it's a point that is tangent to that. Lah. So it's about, um, I mean, it's an example that the book brought up. Is, if God is so powerful, why, why doesn't he um, remove like evil, right? Yeah. But by removing evil, then you can't define what is good. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, a, a more, a more um, less ideological uh, thought I have is that I think one, one reflection I have over, uh, over like being a leader in the army, I realized that a lot of people have this assumption or it's a very deep-rooted thought that they have or just the thinking that they have that things are, uh, there's always a reason behind everything and there's always a, 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 a person who is like controlling that, that thing. So for example, like um, let's say, I, I, I don't know, like recently someone, something happened at the East, East West Line, right? Then people always say, oh, the government is behind it or like something, something is wrong. But I think it's not, okay, okay, just more specifically, I think my experience in the army, I realized that there weren't a lot of reasons for a lot of things. Yep. A, lot of re- a lot of things happen just because it's just like that. Like maybe people have to wait just because there are a lot of things to be, a lot of things to be done, to be done before like a conduct happens or wh- whenever, whenever there is a reason, it has to be a very solid reason for things to happen. So essentially most things that like happen in life, there really isn't a reason for it. Aha, uh-huh, right? yeah. As in, yeah, yeah. So essentially we, we are all like meaning making creatures. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, and so my reflection is that this is one of the arguments that I have over why God may not exist because we're just trying to make so much reason out of everything. But actually a lot of things, I mean, even in my time um, trying to work in, I mean like leading an army, it was so difficult to, to bring, it's like a whole idea of entropy. Right? It's, so hard, it's so hard to bring things together, you know? Yeah. And even yeah. after bringing things together, it's so hard to create a reason for it, right? Like It's hard to justify a lot of things because yeah. a lot of things don't really make sense. And yeah, you just have to do it. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, so, so more specifically, it's like, let's say I'm, I'm conducting a conduct. I mean, let's, say, let's say I run. Then there are a lot of things to be checked off. Like, for example, like, I don't know, is your medic there? Is, your, is the timing right? Is the, the weather right? Are people accounted for? That kind of thing. Yeah. And then someone come up to you and ask, oh, why are you waiting so long? Why are you using this drop? And then I'm just thinking like, that's just one very small consideration of the whole conduct. You know, like, it's not very, really, you know, okay, for some people ask, oh, why, why did we run this route, right? Because it's, a, it's very hilly or it's not the track or something like that. But if you ask the person who actually conducts it, it's just like, oh, there's no reason. Oh. It's just cause availability or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So like in the grand scheme of things, right? I feel like a lot of, like human, as human beings, we have so many questions. Well, maybe God's answer is like, oh, there's no reason. It's just, just like that. Oh. Yeah. As in, yeah, this is like one of the central like tenets, I would say, that a lot of people have contention with. Because, uh, yeah, okay, I personally also love, um, I feel like we, we rely a lot of on confirmation bias. Mm, and yeah. Yeah, we, we keep thinking there's this uh, grand orchestrator of events and we, we, we try to make sense of what's happening to us based on those, uh, based on this big grand plan uh, that some 
omniscient creator has for us, right? So when, whenever something uh, good happens, you're like, oh, okay, I'm being rewarded for some kind of reason. And if something bad happens, you'll be like, ah, I'm getting punished because I did this and that. But I feel like this is very, very, uh, it's hard to grapple with. Uh, and it's, it's something that I struggle with a lot. Mm. It's very easy for people to say, oh, you shouldn't, think, you shouldn't think that way. But everyone thinks that way. So I will give, for example, you know, let's say um, you're a family member who is undergoing surgery. And, and once the guy comes out, then you will just be like, the family will be like, oh, thank God. The, the surgery is successful. Yeah. The, doctor, the doctor there will just be like, what the hell? I'm the one yeah, I see this meme before. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a meme. So it's, like, it's not even God. Create, like, yeah, you didn't thank the doctor. Yeah, you, the doctor is literally the one that saved your life. Save the guy's life. So, I'd rather you thank God. Yeah. So my point being is people always think, um, will have the thought that there's always a reason behind things. And even those people that argue there isn't a reason for, for or behind those things. When it comes to very extreme cases or when, when uh, there's a lot on the line, they are, they are, their ideas are challenged. No? So yeah. they, will, they will pray. And, I mean, nothing wrong with praying, but mm. okay, my point, right? It's different, it's different when things are on the line. Yeah, sure. I feel like this is a cop-out, but a lot of people will just argue that uh, there are a lot of ways, a lot of things that are happening that you just don't understand. Yeah. This, right? Mm. In, it's a cop-out, but I, I feel like but it may, be, it may be true because you cannot disprove that anyway. Now, some people say it because they don't know anything and they're just too lazy to find out. But some people say it because they, find out, they try to find out a lot of things with, and with their life experience and therefore they say that thing. So that's my perspective. Yeah. yeah. It's a hard question to answer la, and there's no answer la, to be honest. Or do you... No, and so, okay. <laughs> back, back to, your, back to your, the start about faith and having, or just having that leap of faith, right? I still do think, and I have, I have a conversation with one of my other friends. It, I think it's still good to have the intuitive uh, nature to go and like go and ask and go and uh, be curious about these kind of things. But okay, one 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 thing that my friend told me is that um it's so weird that people don't even believe in God and while Satan believes in God because you know the, I mean it's a it's like the very nature of Satan, the evil and good is just because without evil there's no good that kind of thing. But yeah. it's so weird that even Satan himself believes in God but you don't believe in God. <laughs> believe in the existence you get it right it's like yeah so I don't yeah. Okay, but even though it, it is still very, it's a leap of faith, there is still, there is still value in trying to seek out and understand as opposed to just, yeah, as opposed to just copying out and just say, oh, you just have to have faith. Actually, I have something interesting. You're familiar with Loki, right? Like the Marvel Loki. Lo- oh, Loki. Yeah. Which basically mean, uh, it's about how the unreasonable insistence that a concept cannot be defined means that it cannot be discussed. Okay, so I'll explain a bit more. So, Basically, the backstory is Loki. Okay, I think this is a comic book now, right? But Loki once made a bet with a dwarf and wagered his hit. So Loki lost, and in due time, the, the dwarves came to collect. But and Loki had no problem with giving up his hit, but insisted that they had absolutely no right to take any part of his neck. Everyone was uh, everyone concerned discussed this matter, and certain parts were obviously the hit, certain parts were obviously the neck. But neither side could agree exactly where one ended and the other began. So in the end, uh, Loki kept his head indefinitely. Yep. <laughs> okay, this doesn't really exactly uh, relate back to the whole suffering topic, but it, it, it kind of, it's kind of related. Lah. So let's say you ask, um, so why does God allow suffering? Then you, you, some of them may answer, God works in mysterious ways. And a lot of people use this as this trump card to deal with what uh, cannot really be explained or what we don't really understand. Yeah, yeah which is related uh, to the point I made. Talking about the, things the, that cannot be defined is very tricky. Mm. Okay, yeah, but look, on a very side note, but on a tangent note today also, is one of the things, like, I mean, I told you before, right, one of the fears I have is that I will not understand things before I die. Or, like, I will have a, 
I don't know whether it's a weird fear, but it's just a fear, like, you know, like you don't understand things. In, in general, you have the fear that you don't understand things. Let's say you go for, before an exam, you have the fear that you don't understand something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So mine is a bit more like overarching. Like, yeah, I told you scared. before, I think it's a bit weird though. <laughs> yeah. As in, uh, as in. Yeah, I understand your point. Because it's, it's physically incapable, in, impossible for anyone to understand everything. Yeah. But then again. Essentially, you are, you are gunning to be a god. <laughs> <laughs> Is that everyone trying to be a god? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, no, so yeah, so one, one of those fears I have is that you know, you um, you can only think you can only talk about things that are defined. It, I need to say it has really been talked about, so it, it's difficult to venture into knowledge that hasn't been discussed or thought about because there is no words to describe that area. Yeah, yeah, okay, no but more, more unrelated was I was trying to think of a because in theory of knowledge, like I'd be like, okay, right. We have to talk, we have to choose a certain uh, area of knowledge, so yep. like arts and that kind of thing. So my thought was that in art, you can never really, uh, okay, I can't really remember what my, my topic, my, my uh, what's it called, research topic was, but, oh no, not research topic, Um, the, the question like, the essay question like this, but it's more like, you can never define what is good art. Some 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 areas of art are not discovered yet. So for example, like before, before like all the digitization, digitization of everything, it's hard to talk about digital art. Uh, like basically for social sciences or whatever, right? It's because that there's no, uh, there's not there's no set of common languages. Yeah. Yeah. There's no yeah. common language, so it's difficult to discuss something relative to others. So like, you know, that like social sciences are very subjective, right? So yeah, it's very hard to make it empirical, and it's yeah, that's basically how it's difficult to judge. A lot of the social sciences and like art. Yeah, no, exactly. One, one of my colleagues who was studied who, who studied math. She told me after studying math and because math is very very rigorous, right? You can't you can't BS math. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so it's not very weird that other like social sciences call it or like the something theory or the something hypothesis because those are very is is essentially all based on the sub, your subjective opinion. So it's just, oh I have this theory. Yeah, yeah, like, it's true, it's true. Like for, even for example that the. the, the the, the the what was that that knowledge thing you talk about that, that curve dunning kruger yeah the dunning the, the dunning kruger theory people just like oh it's a theory because you know they just made an observation but even within even within uh tr- trying to make a graph out of things is very subjective you know what I mean true but yeah. I would say like the aim of okay I wouldn't say the aim of social sciences but a more useful way of looking at it is they are introducing not theories but but useful frameworks that you can use to think about life more productively mm. yeah. So yeah, maybe mm. they're wrong to say it's a theory. <laughs> but yeah, some of them are, are still able to be valid, uh. proven. But how do you prove a subjective? Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, it's just uh it's just an assumption that has been generalized. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one one interesting thing I've learned in my job is that do you know what do you know what is uh I mean you know what's best fit line, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um so best fit line, let's say you have a gra- a graph, then you generally use linear regression to come up with your best fit line. So that means like let's say you have a few dots. Uh, they're all like slowly moving in the x equals y line. In the x equals y. Yeah, that means it's just going up, la, essentially, but in a very linear way. Um, you can use several. You can use several. Uh, you can use several ways to come come up with a best fit line. And I realized that it may not necessarily be always uh aligned because let's say you have multiple you have multiple dots, right? And generally, it's going in the x equals y direction. That means upwards, right? Yep. But let's say you, you do this thing called overfitting. That means you try to include everything too much. That means you try to include uh, the dots too much. You will get not a straight line, but a very, very weird curve that goes through every single dot. 
So it's a bit like a mountain. Yeah, it just goes up and it down. It just starts at the bottom, it goes up, then it just goes through every single point and it comes down. Okay. But it's still, it's still uh, actually, if you think about it, like math and like uh, numerically, right, it's a better fit graph because it's more, it's overfitted. It goes through every single point and you get it. Yeah, as in, this is literally the best fit that you can get, right? Yeah, it's literally the best fit you can get because it goes through every single point. And, yeah. And this, this is irregardless of how many points you have. So you have 1,000 points, it's okay. So it's not, it doesn't matter about your data size. Okay. And, and so it just made me wonder, because this is overfitted and linear, linear regression, you, you, you would think that that's the, the best fit line already. But actually, there's no such thing as a, a best fit line. Or it's all very subjective because the best fit line will still not overcompensate. It will still have a level of certainty that, I mean, level of uncertainty that it doesn't compensate. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, go through every single line. You get it? Yeah. Every, yeah. every single dot, I mean, yeah. So if so, back to this topic about theories and like uh, making making a observation out of uh, data, right? Oh, sorry, making an analysis out of observations, right? One would think, okay, let's say if there are several dots. Or I mean, generally speaking, not just dots on a graph, but several observations. Then you make a a judgment or like a a, a hypothesis on those those dots, right? But even on a numerical level, if you overcompensate, you could be going one direction. I mean, one observation. If you undercompensate, uh, quote unquote, not, say, uh, not even undercompensate, just come up with a best fit line, you will, you will go in a different direction. You will, like, you will, um, you will go and uh, make another judgment. You get it. Yeah, but I'm not sure why you're trying yeah. to get that here. <laughs> no, it's essentially to say that everyone, everyone can have a theory. And this, so not even for social science, even for math, everyone can come up with a theory and everyone can come up with an equation to sort of try to guess and prove what will happen next. But no one can really know because even, even within graphs, you can best fit, but it's not the best fit because you have the better fit or like overfit the graph. It will come up with a very different um, outcome. Actually, on this topic of uh, correlation, right? Actually, I saw this uh, this interesting uh, piece of news. Now, basically, it's saying um, people with dementia are more likely to have COVID-19 or more likely to be susceptible to COVID-19, right? And on a surface value, okay, I'm not, I didn't really read the article, but one thing I could say is that the only thing is also reasonable to say that it's just a very arbitrary uh, correlation because people who are, who have dementia, right, are also more likely to be of the older demographic. And people who are the older demographic will have a lower immunity and hence they are more susceptible to COVID, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like, yeah. okay, I'm not disproving any of the, the things that the article said, but just taking it at a surface value, you may suspect that it's something else uh, than that correlation. So it's just about how a lot of the things that we make links to mean actually be very arbitrary. Like you can, you can literally put any two variables together and then say that they are correlated. And it's very difficult to, to prove a causation. So how, how a best fit line works is that they use this thing called least squared uh, number. So that means essentially everything, so from the dot to the line and uh, the, number, the, the number of the dots on the left are equal to the number of the dots on the right. That's how you measure yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. But alternatively, you compensate for every single dot, like literally go through them, and you come up with a very, very different prediction. Okay, I get it, but uh, how does this make a prediction outside of this data set? Mm. Yeah, that's true, that's true. It doesn't. Yeah. But, but I think the very fact that, that is, you can't predict something out of this graph challenges the, the question, like, how can you base your basis on using a linear graph to, to yeah, go true. and uh, predict the future? Yeah, yeah but that's a good question. I, I, I suppose you can use this, use both lines to come and predict within the graph. Yeah. Yeah, but 
Maybe not after. <laughs> I think we have to take a little bit of a more skeptical stance when we look at studies, right? Because sometimes the correlations actually are legit, but we just shouldn't uh, trust everything at the first glance. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, what I arrived at. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's the attitude we should have towards God. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. You want to talk about your Aquinas, the five theory thing? Oh, I can't remember anything about that, but actually I, I still don't really understand because I essentially, okay, essentially it's just about something has a cause and every, every effect has a cause. And because there are so many, it's, it's like a, it's a domino effect. La. Someone has to have pushed it first. You know, someone must have been the, the first ah, cause. Yes. Yeah. The first but number, the five, right? Yeah, but the five, the five, I feel like the five, or at least my understanding of the five arguments is that they're both the, they're all the same idea, it's just different phrase. So like... Yeah, because I'm not, I'm not terribly familiar with these five theories of a queen. So the first argument is the argument from the first mover. The second argument is the argument from causation. Sounds exactly like the same thing to me. <laughs> right. Yeah, it sounds like they're just uh, derivatives of each other. Yeah. But okay, it, I mean, I'm not downplaying his argument. His argument is true. Uh, not true, but it's in... Is, is very reasonable, right? I have doubts in the sense that you know it's it's hard to make a reason out of everything in the sense that uh the idea of entropy everything is just naturally become a disorder or it's naturally become chaotic. But I also I would also think I mean this is just in my head that naturally there has to be a first cause, right? Because you can't make something out of nothing. And on that to- on that topic, making something out of nothing, I I reflect on the bio experiment that guy did is. I don't think he necessarily needed to have a bio experiment to prove it because you, you can just think about it like idea-wise, right, isn't it? Wait, for the listeners, can yeah, you explain what, what, what experiment you're talking about? <laughs> you know, I can't remember who, but the guy put like, uh, he, he kept the agar jar empty and then he left it overnight or something like that. Yeah, he's fine, right? yeah, I was going to talk about that. Yeah, well, yeah, elaborate on that, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so this is just like a very, very side experiment. Uh. It doesn't prove much. Okay, so basically this guy, uh, his name is Pasteur. Is that how you say his name? Okay, Pasteur. Pasteur. Okay, but basically he has this experiment right there where he tries to disprove spontaneous generation. So the gist of it is uh, he, he designed a procedure to test whether sterile nutrient broth uh, could spontaneously generate microbial life. So he set up two experiments. So he has two uh, swan neck flasks, right? And he added yeah. a nutrient broth to both of them. And then he boiled both of the broth to kill any existing microbes. So after the broth from both flasks was sterilized, Pester broke one of the flask swan necks off, exposing that one to the air above. So over time, uh, the dust particles from the air fell into the one with the broken flask. And essentially, the, the dust particles remained near the tip of the swan necks that were not broken. So essentially, the... The, the result of this is that um, the broth in the broken flask was the only ones that became quickly cloudy. So this is the sign that it teemed with microbial life. However, the broth in the unbroken flask remained clear. So the, the conclusion that he has here is that uh, without the introduction of dust or the microbes in the air, no life can arise from, from nothing. Lah. My, my immediate reflection um, about this is that this is just very specifically, it's not very ideal because this proves that just within, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it just proves that within like the broth that you can't prove, like, can't make life out of nothing. He's, he's trying to prove from an example, a very bigger thing, which is that you can't create spontaneous generation. Uh, you can, yeah, spontaneous generation. You can't create nothing out of nothing. You can't create something out of nothing. But then again, let's say, let's talk about like, I, I mean, I didn't study physics, but for example, like in 
space-wise, uh, like, um, how do I say, at the very start of like the universe, maybe some chemicals they are inorganic, they are not that don't they're not living like essentially. They don't require any metabolism or whatever. I can't remember the, the definition of organic, but they're inorganic and they combine to form something organic. But using this experiment, it won't disprove that. What? You know what I mean? Mm, I agree. Okay, maybe this one, this other example is a bit more relatable. Okay, so oh, I'm pretty that? sure that you studied this one also. It's called the Miller and Uri experiment. I can't remember anything. Okay, so <laughs> I'll try to like condense it. Now. So basically, uh, what they did is they built on the Pasteur's experiment. So what they did is they tried to uh, recreate the atmosphere of the early days. So they created a closed system that has like uh, heated, heated water and a mixture of gases that were that were thought to be abundant in the atmosphere of early Earth, right? And they also tried to simulate lightning that was uh, present. So they, they used electricity to replace that. So what they tried to do is that they, they were trying to experiment whether they could create DNA or other types of complex molecules. So um, the conclusion that they had is that they, they found that various types of uh, amino acids, uh, sugars, lipids, and other organic molecules could be formed. However, the most important part, the large complex molecules like DNA and protein were missing. So I think crucially what, what this uh, experiment shows is that one of the major building blocks for like spontaneous life, which is DNA, cannot spontaneously form from uh, simple compounds. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I yeah, not, not remember it, but I mean, it doesn't seem like a very rigorous experiment to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it, it's based on the assumption that in order for something to have life, we need DNA, which, which probably is the case for many things, but hmm. you get what I mean, right? So they're assuming that DNA causes life and because if something doesn't have DNA, there's no life. But then again, I mean, the idea of something that's living also is very debatable. <laughs> yeah, a virus is living because they have no DNA. Yeah, right, because they're RNA. Uh, As in, okay, I wouldn't say that this is a very strong argument, but it, it does... Okay, at, at, least, at least they tried, tried la. <laughs> <laughs> Look, ah, yeah. we, are, we are like we are like scrub kids trying to criticize all these like professional people. Okay, okay. I'm, not, I'm not trying to criticize. It's just that it's good to raise a certain uh, level of doubt. But uh, but you get my point, right? It, yeah, I get your they, point. They are, to, they are arguing. Their argument is from a specific case, which often and more often than not, I mean, in general, doesn't really hold strong for argument. You need to you need to prove by exhaustion, like prove that everything for every for every example, it will be a case. Okay, yeah, 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 totally. As in, so like so for this example what they thought was abundant enough could possibly not have been, right? Yeah. Or there could have been other elements at play that we didn't even know about. Yeah. But you know, you know what I mean? Of course, because I think it was, okay, at a point in time when I first studied about this or learned about it, I, I thought it was quite smart that they thought about the lightning, like them considering yeah. the factor of lightning and including that in their experiment. But then again, there could be a lot of other factors that could have been in play. Yeah. There's, okay. yeah, you know I mean? yeah, yeah, there's, there's like, no like experiments, you have like controlled variables, right? How, how yeah. is possibly going to control all the variables, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. On a, on a, oh my God, on another, on another note, something that I've been very curious about is why I always, okay, I never really touched about it or like read more about it, but why, I mean, why are there more experiments that are not single variables? Because, okay, from, from a math perspective, at least, we always learn about trying to find like, I mean, for quadratic, like quadratic equation, you find X, right? But like part of, part of a, uh, Number, I mean, I might be wrong, but for example, like number theory, they try to find solutions for like very, very, like multi-variable calculations. You get it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I need to say, let me back to your, the bio thing. 
Why, why can't they do tests with multiple variables? Hmm. Okay. You get it? Yeah, as in... Okay, so I think the, the, the main reason is that they're trying to find a correlation between two variables. And that in itself is really quite complicated. So if you're going to introduce another variable into the mix, it's going to be very hard to uh, single out what is causing the effect. But then again, I, I mean, my own reflection, I realized that sometimes things don't work by itself. Yeah, the emergent properties and all that, right? Yeah, yeah, emergent, yeah, exactly. So it's something always at the top of my head, like, whenever, because I did the bio extended essay or so. I mean, you did bio E also, right? Uh, I, did, I did chem. Oh, you did chem, okay, okay. I, I always thought, why it's so weird that even at a, I wouldn't say high level, but at a high level than just thinking of a thought or doing like a mini project, it was just so weird to me that, so how, how, my, how my E work was that? I, I still did very um, single variable like comparisons. That means that I, I challenged this, challenged that. But throughout the whole essay, there will like, be multiple mini, mini uh, comparisons. La. Then at, at the end, I just give a very subjective uh, conclusion of, okay, I compare this and I compare that, I compare this and I compare that. I say A and B, B and C, C and D. And therefore, A is better than D, something like that. Yeah. So I compare A and B, B and C, C and D, and yeah. And since B is better, than, you know, you know that kind of thing. But yes, actually, yes, yeah. while doing it, I realized actually, wait, why not I just do A and B compared to C? So I mix those two solutions, that kind of thing. And sometimes those, you know, like if you compare it in a three way or, or four way, it's a lot more different than you just compare one on one. Yeah, I totally agree. Right. Uh, but I think it, it comes down to what the what the research is uh aiming at because sometimes they really just want to find a a correlation between variables. But sometimes they could aim to find out whether this group of variables could affect something more than the, the variables in itself. So, yeah, I think, it, I think it totally depends on the context. I'm, I'm very sure that there are experiments out there that test the emergent problem. So instead, they can frame their research on not how this variable can affect this other variable, but how this group of variables can affect this variable. Yeah, yeah but, but I, I don't think it's more than that. La. It's more than that. But I, I, can't, I, I don't really know how to put my thoughts into words, even within my brain. But, but you get it right, it, it, it seems very, very, very low level to compare things just as is. I mean, not just, just as two things, like having an independent variable and a, a dependent variable. Yeah. It, I don't know, to me, it seems very, very low level. <laughs> right. Well, we have to start somewhere. <laughs> well, this challenges the whole scientific process, the whole scientific method. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? there, should, there, should, there should be an a, a alternative to this. To I just comparing are. something. They are, just that we don't know of them. Maybe. maybe yeah, so. I think we are too low level. Uh. Yeah. Nice. Okay, what else is there? Why, why is... Uh, okay, how about we, we bring uh, this back to what, uh, what does having a religion mean to you? You have more personal question. Oh, yeah, more personal. What does it mean to you? <laughs> well, I mean, okay. Uh, I think religion is something that uh, people keep very close to their identities, right? I mean, most of the time, religion is part of our identity. Uh, and... Religion is part of my identity. But sometimes oh, yeah. when, when we think like this, right? Sometimes we, we become like trapped in our own thinking like, and we are unable to think about stuff very meaningfully. So for example, when, you, when people ask you a lot, a lot of questions about your faith, right? A lot of people seem to be taking it as like an attack on their faith. Okay, not say everyone, but some people do. So I think uh, more people should be a bit more zoomed out like, and think about religion a bit more critically. Because I... I, I mean, a lot of our friends are like what second generation Christians, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's a blind faith, but it's a lot of it is uh I would say passed down uh, in a yeah. sense. So I think a lot of us don't really take the chance to examine a lot of uh, our deepest uh faiths and religions very closely because and assumptions. Yeah, okay, because but... it affects us very deeply. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 
Great, two points. I, yeah, I completely agree with you. The fact that, you know, whenever you talk about religion, people always take it very personal. Yeah. Or more generally, some arguments people just generally think um, too personally. And it becomes very, it becomes very difficult to talk about it. Yeah, people very closed yeah. off, right? So like, yeah, and, and, and it's not anything wrong. Like, for example, I, I have... I have some difficulty talking to my parents about religion also because um, it is hard to... And one of the, okay, one of the pointers that my, my dad will bring up is um, his, his faith is largely based on experience. So it's, yeah. it's hard not to argue about... It's hard not to talk about religion without his specific faith. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do... I, I mean, my, my, my thought to challenge him was to think like... Yeah, it, I mean, de- definitely, I'm... I'm we are, I mean, both of us are not old enough to have this kind of experience to really like link it to. But I also challenge that there is some value in um talking about in 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 uh not not making it too personal, you know, arguing from a very quote unquote scientific way, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a time and place for more personal stories as well as uh, more abstract thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly that point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe I can give one point then. You know how I talk about the confirmation bias and everything. Yeah. Like this whole idea of a a God's plan. Well, okay, yeah. I still have my doubts sometimes. But I think at the end of the day, like especially when the stakes are very high, right? Where like, like you mentioned just now, having yeah. this uh having this concept of this of have uh, a God's plan right for you helps you to have confidence. It's the only way, yeah. Yeah. Like so no matter how bad or dire a situation might be, your faith can get you through it. And just because of that is is very useful already. So it's like a survivor instinct. Huh? Yeah. So okay, while it may be like I'm not trying to say whether it's a construct or not, but I'm just saying that acknowledging that everything works according to God's plan can allow you to uh, function. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it, gets, it gives you meaning and also like motivates you to continue through life. Uh, and it helps you to cope with traumatic events. Also. Yeah. I remember my second point. Sorry, try to backtrack again. But uh, I realized, okay, especially at this juncture in life where you choose um, university or like make like, big life decisions. Uh, um, a, lot, a lot of like okay, for example, day-to-day tasks like studying and uh, I don't know. People generally have a plan, you know. Like okay, more physically, for example, when when you ask someone how, how are they, what are you doing today, their their plan is very detailed. Like uh, very like okay, it will take me like half an hour to take a bus or like, very 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 detailed pointers. When you just, when you ask someone about their life, they they will like take a step back first because they don't really know what they're gonna do in life in general. Most people don't know what to do in life. Um, so my point being is people generally, yeah, their identity and their beliefs are very founded on very, very weak foundations. Hmm. Okay, I'm not sure whether my energy on the, the, the time and the scheduling thing was related, but, but you get my <laughs> point, right? You, you know what I mean? Okay, so so what is, um, what is an example of a weak foundation? Actually, okay, yeah, specifically back, okay, I don't really know why I said that, but I, it's just, a, I, I can't really think of a specific, specific example, but for example, on the religion part, why generally people tend to think of the, uh, have have hopes that there's a reason. It's yeah. just because it's a lot easier to live that way. Mm. Yeah, and, and well, it's it's exciting and uh, fun to engage your curiosity by um, thinking about all uh, all these kind of things. It's not very practical in a sense because yeah, you just can't live, you just can't live. No, no one can live live knowing that they're not they're not special. But in very <laughs> honest, very realistically, everyone is not special. It can be a topic. Uh, like very few. Yeah, very topic. Like, but, but very few people are very special. And if one thinks that they are special, they are more more often than not delusioned. Yeah, they're probably deluded. Yeah, probably don't understand how crazy special like other people are. But um, yeah, so in a sense, it's like a it's a coping mechanism. But I think yeah, that it's, it's also a very it's a very transactional way of looking at it. And a lot of uh very uh, devout 
Christians will frown upon that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's another topic about transactional love, which I don't mind talking about later. Um, but okay, like for example, um, just talking about careers or like jobs or like why why do for example why if you ask me why do I want to study math and I actually say this in like official interviews. So like for example, when the, inter- uh, when the interviewer asked me like, oh why why you all come to like this university that kind of thing, my my honest answer and what I have, I have actually said was that. I yeah, there's a lot of reasons that people normally say that well, the university is great and a lot of research and kind of thing. But my 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 feedback was that my actual what I actually said, right, was that a lot of life decisions are based on very small, small things. Like um that, that's why I think having a random conversation with people or like meeting like random people is good because like you know like it sort of like keeps it some 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 small causes have very big effect. So for example, you ask me why I do math, right? It's just because I watch a lot of YouTube videos. And probably because like the YouTube algorithm keeps on suggest- suggesting more uh, math videos to me, so I'm like very interested in math. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think I thought about this before. <laughs> yeah, but so, so you get it right. Like, yeah, decisions are very arbitrary starting point. Yeah, yeah. So if you ask about things that are like very like like day to day stuff, people will give you very very like solid answers or like why why you should use like why you should use like Notion instead of compared to Google. For those that don't know, like Notion is the some app like it's, it's like a Google Docs equivalent, but better. Like it's very specific and it's very detailed, right? But when you ask people like, oh, why why are you like, I don't know, why are you architect? Or like why are you like a lawyer? Mm. People will just like be quiet for a while and try to think of reasons or like very solid or like justifiable reasons. But there isn't one because most people make very big life decisions on very arbitrary things, which is completely fine. I mean, what I think is fine to have to have. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that actually. Yeah. Don't have much to add. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but transactional love, what, what's your opinion on that? Transactional love, huh? Hmm. Anything. Do you think it's bad? Do you think it's good? I don't. Uh, like okay. My 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 reflection is that while it seems very nice to say that transactional love is not good and you should shouldn't love people because of transaction, then again, the definition of transaction can be is very blur. Like how how can you not? How can you uh do something for someone without expecting anything? And this even including expecting like a thank you or expecting like a, a response. Hmm. Is a, uh, I would say okay. Even in the extreme case, for example, like a caregiver to the elderly, one would say that oh, the elderly isn't giving anything back, but a caregiver is, uh, for example, it's not, it's not a job like, Given that it's not a job, the caregiver is just doing it out of love. But then again, uh, I would say a small part of that is getting the satisfaction, her own satisfaction from caring for the person. Yeah. yeah so yeah. yeah. So so almost everything has a okay. But in in that case, the extreme case, then naturally. There's not a lot of reward system for her or him or her to go and be the caregiver, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I, I I read a book recently about that actually talks about this. So it's called okay. the Elephant in the Brain. I don't know if you heard oh, of the it. Elephant in the Brain. Yeah, the Elephant in the Brain. Oh, so okay. I think okay, I'll just condense it into like a few sentences. So what it's trying to say is humans usually have two reasons for doing something. One of them is a good reason that you say. And one of them is the true reason that you have. And you don't really want to say the true reasons. So there's wow, a lot of, uh, we, we have a lot of ulterior motives whenever we do something. And a lot of those things come down to things concerning social status or like social esteem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that we do that we unconsciously do because we want to gain a status. So yeah, bringing back to your caregiver example, your, the caregiver may think that... Uh, Oh, I'm doing this. I'm helping out this person because, you know, it's doing good for the world. But you know, down they're thinking. Yeah, unconsciously it, it, she's thinking that. Yeah, I, this this I, helps I me to gain my status as someone that uh is having the capacity oh. to care for others. 
Yeah, you know, and, and, and it's a it's a second tier level of uh uh what's it called? Uh like the first tier I would say is people who just want to earn money and like have a lot of be wealthy enough and they have their status. Lah. But the second tier is like people who acknowledge that that is uh too too superficial or or you know what I mean, or too just how do I say, yeah. So so they want to go for something that's second level. The, the first tier of people are people who uh, just chase money and chase uh, success and chase fame, that kind of thing. The, 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 basic, the basic things. La. Okay, okay la, I mean, this is very theoretical. Nothing wrong if you actually do it. But, and most people do it anyways. Then there are second tier people who chase uh, recognition based on the assumption that, uh, or they want to make an impression that they don't care about that because they are more sophisticated. But actually, they're also chasing for the same thing, which is fame. In a sense that for the caregiver, she may have the thinking that, oh, People will recognize me or I'll be recognized because I acknowledge that I don't care about money. Yeah. And therefore I'm not a superficial. But actually, in a sense that when you think that way, you're actually still superficial. Mm. Because you're still caring about what people think about you. Yeah. It's just that it's a good delusion. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a second tier thing, right? It makes me reflect now also, like because because of my I don't for math, there's not really a very give uh give and take. Oh yeah, what's it called? given route for me to do right so i can go into like academia or i can go to do like all those uh like bank stuff but then again i realize even if i do like academia like like uh, get a phd even though it seems very humble because you don't get paid a lot but you you're just pursuing knowledge right i would say most people still pursue it for the recognition yep as opposed to just pure knowledge and, and i was okay i, I, I would say it's still very humbling right? because you really have to work you have to slave it out to get your phd and you don't get, I mean, from what I've heard, there, it doesn't benefit your career. It doesn't benefit, like no one will call you doctor. It's just a, it's just a very formal thing. La. But other than that, there's no benefit as opposed to just getting knowledge. But people still do it just for, I mean, like what you say, that's what people say and what people don't say. Mm. And I believe what people don't say is that people do it just for the pride la, of being a PhD holder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, uh, we are very eager to, to look good, right? So we emphasize a lot now of our pity motives. And then we downplay a lot of our ugly ones. Wow, wow that's deep. Eh? And yeah, we, yeah we, we downplay them because we just don't want to seem ugly. But actually, those are our real reasons why we're doing this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, for example, you know, you, you always notice that when people um, downplay, or at least Singaporeans, are at least when they, those who don't want to seem cocky, or like, let's say they, they did real well for exam, then they just be like, oh, uh, nothing on la. Oh, they do a humble brag. <laughs> yeah, humble brag. But when people do the humble brag, it's like exactly what you said. It's, is downplaying, but it actually, in a sense, deep down, they really think that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should totally read this book, man. <laughs> what is it called? Elephant in the Brains. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's like a default in society, right? To to you know, like that is wrong to have these so-called ugly motives, right? But I I feel like it's actually more reasonable lah, than we expect, and we shouldn't judge people so much because of no yeah, yeah yeah exactly so as in let's say we go back to the caregiver again right yeah let's say it's a bit harsh it's a bit harsh yeah okay it is harsh but you 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 cannot fault a person for having these kind of uh ugly motives because i would say that it's kind of our nature yeah i was just gonna ask if not for these motives then what other motives is there for life essentially what what is to life <laughs> damn okay so what, what, what's your thing on that so far, what I've been thinking, the answer is the most pure form is the pursuit of knowledge. Nice. So just, <laughs> right. Like if you ask me, right, honestly, if I have the best, the best job to me is just be a student. Like if everyone pay for my thing, everything, and just be a student. Not, not even a professor, because professors have to teach and have to go and research. Means you have to do work. Yeah. I want to be like a student. Just learn. Okay. 
what, what is your motivation to learn so many things? Is there an ugly it's motive the, there or what? It's the Are fear that I don't, I will, no, it's the fear that I, I, will, I will die not knowing something. Yet again, we're back at this topic. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Okay, but I get what you mean. As in, I, I definitely want to learn as much as I can about the things that matter to me. But it seems like you just want to learn everything. And that seems a little bit too abstract and uh, unreasonable. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, maybe I'm just too young and naive. Well, uh, never mind. Having a learning, learning for life mindset is good. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Okay, I think there's two ways to, at least two ways I see life. Uh, and you can always look things from the back forward and from the forward back, like up, down, and down. Up. Yeah. And my point being is, I mean, the context of that was this. So if most people look life from, from, uh, from where they are forward, meaning to say like, okay, uh, what, what, what can I achieve? That kind of thing. But I think my decision to do or like study something very academic was because if you look life back, it means like imagine you're on your hospital bed, you're going to die what would you wish you have done? Because if you keep looking life from, from back forward, you would think there's a lot of time, which there probably is. Uh, there probably is. Uh, there probably is a lot of time to study mm. something or like to go and do what you want to do. But then again, would it encompass every... Like, I mean, okay, for example, when you study, you would think like maybe that one month is a lot of time. But once you break it down from a month, like at the end, looking back, right? You realize actually a month is probably like, because uh, you need two days a weekend to rest or something. So like five days, five, five times four, so 20 days. And each day, after doing all the daily routines like bathing and I don't know like using a phone, how much specific time every day do you have? So it's like probably I don't know, I study like five hours, six hours of solid studying, like not even preparing to study, just like five straight hours of studying. So five times twenty is hundred. Then once you get another hundred, you realize actually hundred is not a lot of time as opposed to the one month of time you thought you had. Mm. Right. So like if you look life from the front back, that's how I see it. La. Yeah, like, I I will I will re- I will regret like okay let's say I have more time to read or like more time to uh try to understand something I didn't understand I will like okay okay now now I need to go and uh, read about it. Yeah. Okay. Actually, this is a side side point. Yeah. If are you familiar with the stoic concept of what Mimi yeah, yeah. Mori? Basically, what they advocate is to invite the idea of death into your daily life. Uh, like like Steve Jobs uh, Imagine you die. Yeah. So essentially, that that's it lah. But uh. I think it's it's quite a good uh, framework to use because uh, reminding yourself of the the prospect of death in mind, right? Is okay. While it's a bit of a morbid practice, I, I think it's actually it could give you a lot of benefits. It it, it, it keeps you in check and makes you realize what to prioritize. Uh. Yeah, it, it helps you to really really grasp what is your priorities. So that's great. Although but it's I'm, a bit of uh, it's a bit of like playing with fire because. No one can really understand. No one can really understand death. Right? If you seriously think about death, I think there was one point, one period of time, I really just sat down and tried to consider death. It is really very scary because you can't understand. Um, it. You just imagine yourself. Okay, I, I hope not, no one is gonna freak out or get some depression from this. But <laughs> like, if you imagine yourself not being able to talk to your friends, not being able to feel, taste, think. Okay, not even able to think. You can't even think. That's when you die. You can't think. Yeah. It's very, very scary. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've came to this point before. And then I was like, I was so scared about the, the concept about thinking about nothing. Or you can't, there's not, no nothing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. It, like, if you seriously sit down and consider that, it's very, very scary. But then again, my, my reconciliation to that point was that I realized that once you die, there's nothing. So, and, and I mean, one of the, someone commented on, you know, Kino Reeves, you know, Kino Reeves, right? The, 
the guy that acted in uh, John Wick. Yeah, I do, I do. Yeah, he, there's one interview, someone asked him, right, how, what, what do you think will happen when you die? Yeah, so the question is, what do you think will happen when you die? And the most beautiful part was when he answered it, he said uh, the people around you, around him, would miss him a lot. And the basis of him saying that, because I think I think it was Jimmy Kimmel or someone asking him, or maybe Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon or someone, he was, he was more about asking about um, how, how do you think you will feel? But he really answered it from the assumption that he knows he that he won't feel, you know, you, you won't think. And it's not about what he what he thinks because when you're dead, it doesn't matter really. Like, yeah, when you're dead, you won't be there to think about it. <laughs> yeah. So in a sense, that part is comforting because you won't feel anything. Mm, yeah. You, you have nothing to worry about because there is nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's like very ironic, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so his answer is very good because he answered it very practically, which is that, or not practically, he answered it very directly. Yeah, practically. Lah. Because there, to him, he, to him himself, there's nothing that will affect him because he's dead already. But it will affect the people around him. Oh. Yep. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a very smart answer. Hmm. Yeah. Although slightly depressing. Yeah. Okay, I think we've been going for quite a long time. Anything else you want to talk about? Really? Fossil theory. What is fossil theory? <laughs> what, wait, what, I'm, quite, I'm quite curious what's it. Uh, okay, I can't remember exactly uh, how to explain it, but it's basically a theory that tries to show that the Great Flood happened. Oh, like the Noah's Ark Great Flood? Yeah. Entertain the thought of having a rapid flood, right? This implies that you should have a rapid burial, right? So in the case of a normal evolution, the animals would have died and then be buried deep within the ground, like over a course of a thousand years. And then if a marine animal dies, it would float to the top and then it wouldn't sink. And even process and the, the process of decomposition will occur. And then the animal would have been gone. But then what uh, people have found is that even soft animals like uh, jellyfish they are preserved. So this essentially implies a very rapid burial. So what it just yeah, it just suggests that the flood actually happened. Yeah. Float. Oh, ah, I see. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, interesting thing about that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Funny how they call it theory. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just an observation. Uh. Oh yeah, you can't really debate about it. Yeah. But but that, that's a very good observation though. I, I didn't I didn't think about it. Yeah. Because there is I would think at least there is sufficient amount of like quite a large number of animals who are like buried and therefore you find their what's it called uh, those those uh, fossils uh. Mm. okay what is there what have we not touched what is there I think we covered pretty much a lot yeah okay so yeah what, what, what is your meaning of life what what do you what do you live for hmm. oh. now you put me on the spot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hmm, okay I think at the end of the day hmm, yeah yeah Okay, I, I share some part of your view also that we we are living a life so that we can learn a lot of things. But I think also one important aspect is being able to share like this knowledge with others. And uh, yeah, okay. then, yeah, other than that, I think like life comes down to very simple things. Lah. You know, it's about like your family, your friends, you know, being able to enjoy <laughs> good things to eat or good things to enjoy every day. That's true. Because I don't know, if we obsessed about finding meaning in our lives every day, right? Then who will be the one doing your living every day? <laughs> You'll be so preoccupied. Oh, that is deep, eh? That is true. <laughs> I, I mean, okay, from a numbers perspective, like you just calculate how many hours you spend eating, doing all the all the routine stuff in your day, which you need to do the yeah, exactly what I said, the living, like bathing. It, it will make up almost a lot of your life. So I don't think it's very superficial to say. Actually, no, I don't even think it's superficial at all to say that it's fine to live life for the simple things because that is just a very, it's a very evident-backed statement. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a very evident back statement. Like you, you'll be lying to yourself that you, you don't like eating anything. Yeah. Uh, yep, yeah, that's that, my that, simple answer. <laughs> yeah. So the only variances people can have is that like last forty percent of like what else do they do in their time? So, mm. Okay, so what, what are the other what is the other forty percent? Your purpose in life? Hmm. I <laughs> okay, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to signal or something. Or like I don't know whether there's any ulterior ulterior motives to this, but I think I genuinely feel like you should live a life that has some certain impact on others. Huh? Wow. <laughs> it, it sounds yeah. very pretentious, I know, but yeah, it does. don't you feel <laughs> the same way? <laughs> uh no, no, as in, I still think there's a value in helping others. Definitely. No, no definitely. Yeah. That's not a very debatable statement. But, I mean, I mean, you should know yourself. Like, when people say this statement, it's very, you, you would think that there's ulterior motives. Yeah. And in, in general, like, even we going back to the topic about transactional love, it's hard to have love without a transactional, without it being a transactional nature. Because yeah. almost anything can be seen as transactional. So, it is hard, it is very, it is very, uh, Living a life of service is very questionable. It is. Yeah. Okay, I'm pretty yeah. sure that I'm deceiving myself in some form, but yeah. it's still generally how I feel. No, yeah, no, as in, yeah, I, I would say, I would say it goes back to those, those is the, I can't forget that phrase again, the, what, what is that graph I was talking about? Dunning-Kruger curve. Yeah, yeah. More, people will go back, I mean, when you ask about this specific question, the life of service, I think people, if you ask a junior doctor or junior uh, nurse, then you ask a senior nurse and you ask a senior doctor, they will give you both the same answer, like a life of service is very, that's what they're living for. But they will give it with two different experiences and contexts. One, you know what I mean? Like one after living, actually going through it and realizing that they have to question their own reason for doing everything else. So. But after that, still answering the same question. Hmm. No, yeah, I, I still think, okay, even though I have a lot of doubt with, uh, I mean, even if I if I declare that I, I'm doing like service or like volunteer work, like it's very natural to think that people have ulterior motives to do it because of transactional love. Yeah. But uh, I still think it's fine if someone does service for life. Anyway, well, one other thing I've learned interestingly this week, or it was quite deep, is that okay. So the context was I was calling one of my uh, auntie's friend who some uh PhD who did his PhD in Oxford. Then he shared with me one. He's just advising me on my my decision making lah. Then he said one thing that is very interesting that he one 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 thing he shared with me was that uh while I can be very objective in all decisions, and I mean this applies to looking at data and everything, right? He said to me people tend to use numbers or make decisions objectively, even though people are subjective in nature, are inherently subjective. Mm. So people tend to make subjective decisions from objective numbers. Yep. You get it? That was damn deep to me. Yeah. Deep. yeah it's, not, it's not impressive if I share like a second hand. When he said it, I was just like, wow, it really hit me. I was like, damn. <laughs> oh, yeah. it, it is impressive. Uh. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, think it, I think it ties into like discussion, or like, this whole discussion actually, like it, it can be very, we can, we can talk about things very objectively, but, yeah, or when people share about their life objectively, there will be naturally a lot of things that are just very subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But okay. Yes. Yeah, so I think my point I'm thinking is that even though uh it's difficult to be objective and you have to talk things very subjectively, it's good to acknowledge those subjective reasonings. Or like, let's say you, I mean, like, let's say if people ask you why you want to be a doctor or why you want to study medicine, you naturally think of all those uh ugly factors, right? Mm. Like the glory or like I, I don't know what but I still think it's good to 
I mean, as you get older, it's good to challenge yourself. I mean, for me also, like why I want to study math and that kind of thing, it's good to challenge yourself. Uh, is that really all to it? Or like, even if it's not, then if you, I think it's fine even if you just want to earn money because you at a point in time, you have to earn money for your family eventually. Yeah, yeah it's, it's completely fine. It's not very superficial. But then again, it's good to question yourself and like think deeper of uh, why why we're doing things. Why, what are we living for? And what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although I feel sometimes we... We definitely won't have all the answers. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's a, it's good to take stock from time to time and like examine our motives uh, for what they they are. Yeah. Like yeah. exactly what uh, Ali Ali shared about uh, the treating your life like a business. So Ali Ali Adal talks about treating your life more like a business rather than a personal life. So what he means by this is that we we implement a certain sense of structure into how we analyze our life and how we plan for what we want to do ahead. So one of the examples that he cites is uh, implementing a weekly review, something like a post-activity review of sorts. And what this does is that uh, it forces you to uh, analyze what you've done well in a week as well as what you've done badly. And yeah, it, it sort of gives you a platform for you to improve on your character and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds a bit, it sounds a bit, uh, from the point you ask, you tell people you should treat your life like this. But then again, that specific point on reflecting is quite good. Like, he's not just asking people to reflect. He's challenging them to reflect them almost as detailedly as a PAR, like a post-action review or like a, yeah, like a business meeting at it. Yeah. Hmm. I think it's good lah, actually. But it's very difficult. Yeah, I, I think we can all start. Like, you don't have to make it like a legit document or something. You can just set out a certain portion of your day at the end of the week to think about your life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I think we should end soon. It's, it's, wow, this is very, very long. This is very long. Hey, but it's good. I like it. Like when there's something to talk about that is very engaging, then you can talk yeah, for two hours. I think, I think this was good actually. Yeah, this is a good, this is a good episode. Let's end off with a, on a less, less intense note. What, what, what other things have you done this week? Do you watch any movies? Okay, I watched this film. It's called uh, Eddie oh, Lee's Go. Basically, oh, right. uh, it's about this uh, ski jumper. Okay, not not ski jumper. Yeah. This this okay. It's this teen who who aspires to be an Olympian, but he suffers like a he suffered a knee complication like when he was really young. So he always had trouble doing a lot of athletic stuff. But he oh, he yeah. doesn't he doesn't give up on his dreams. Uh, so he has this undying determination to to go to the Olympics. Okay. Yeah. So he he tries to do ski jumping uh, like quite legitly. But unfortunately, he gets cut from the Olympic team. So, oh, yeah. why? Because he just wasn't good enough. Uh. Okay. Yeah, so he he doesn't give up on his dream. But of course, he feels de- dejected. Uh. So, yeah. at a certain point in the film, he decides to turn his attention to ski jumping. In ski- not skiing, sorry. Yeah. So, okay. okay. Yeah. Then after that, he wanted to do ski jumping. Right? Okay. What happens wait, is wait. that... This is a real yes, life story. Since yeah, okay. it's a real life story. So okay, this guy he he ends up uh setting a British record for ski jumping. But it's not oh, because wow. he, he was really good at ski jumping or whatever. It's because he was the only British person to do it. Oh. <laughs> he was okay. the first one. Yep. Okay. So and then uh so the film like basically shows how he struggles to do the ski jumps and everything. He finds a good coach and yeah, like, how he manages to qualify for the Olympics uh, by by meeting the minimal requirements for the ski jump. But at the end of the film, uh, yeah, he doesn't really accomplish much in terms of the athletic ability because he, he literally was just a British athlete who decided to take part in the ski jumping 
and he manages to land one of the ski jumps because yeah and then because of that he 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 got a record for it so mm. okay one of the key takeaways i got is that uh when it comes to doing well in things you have need to have a, a good balance of talent and attitude or oh, attitude <laughs> yeah okay because while uh this eddie guy he had very very good attitude he, he had a lot of grit and determination right there's a lot of limits to what he could because he was just not very talented to begin with. So, yeah, for example, he just didn't, he couldn't compete at a very high level and he, instead, he just like, he cleared the jumps but just barely. Mm. Yeah. And then the, the counter example for having talent, right, is the example of his coach. So his coach was this extremely talented uh, ski jumper but mm. because he had a poor attitude, he, he didn't really go very far. So yeah, you just need a combination of both. Yep. That's for me. <laughs> I see that. I don't been watching anything, but I've been listening to the guy, like watching this guy's video. His name is called, his YouTube channel is called Tech Lead. He's some software engineer and like, I, I, th- I think like California, that kind of thing. He's, he's a bit scary in the sense that he's quite cynical. <laughs> he's just very direct. I mean, you search him up, like he, he looks, he looks like how he talks. Very, a bit scary to me, but also very real. Like, like, uh, like he's very real in the sense that he shares things like about his divorce and very 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 personal things. Then one of the things he shared about was that uh uh was it okay no he shared a lot of few things but I think the one thing one thing I'm uh, too aware was that he shared that uh he got he got fired from his job from Facebook because they thought like he because Facebook knew that he was having a YouTube channel and he has I think he has like almost almost a million subscribers so I think they're just worried that um he may publicize opinions about Facebook or something something like that so they fire him. So I mean, it seems quite reason- somewhat reasonable. Also quite surprising that if you do something like this, they, they fire you, right? Yeah. Yeah, he shared his opinion that he believes that uh, they are somewhat wrong also in the sense that uh, he thinks YouTube, every, almost everyone will start having a YouTube channel already. It's almost like how everyone has an Instagram page. Hmm. Yeah. I was thinking like, wow, that's maybe just my YouTube algorithm, but I've been starting to see a lot of random people just posting on YouTube and they're not like, they're not like Casey Neistat level. Hmm. But just a lot of random people just like, well, legit also, but also posting a lot of videos. What, what's your thought on that? Do you think it ever be a case where everyone has a YouTube channel? I don't think everyone will be creating a YouTube channel, of course, but definitely I think like the, the barrier to entry is much lower than before. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think it's just like, there, there's, there's been like a shift in the culture that, oh, you need to be legit to, to post some content online. I think, yeah, generally people have entertained a, a, a new idea that, you know, you can literally just be someone documenting your life, and that's that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, but I think that's good, la. That's good. But okay, lah. Good and bad. There's too much data now. You yeah. don't know what is. You don't know whether anyone is legit already. Eh. But it just okay. It intrigues me because after saying, after he said that, after I, I mean, after I listened to that, I realized there are a lot of really random people who have a lot of views and also a lot of subscribers. Uh, who are posting content online and um, they seem so legit and not not that they're not legit, but it's just they're not famous, oh. They are famous in a number sense, like they have millions of viewers, but they're not like, oh, you talk about it, everyone know. Like even Ali Abdal, you see, he, he's someone who is famous to us. But actually, when I ask around, not many even know about Ali Abdal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get it, right? So there are actually a lot of people like Ali Abdal, you know, but I mean, obviously, he's a lot more famous just because of his credentials. Mm. So I don't know. It might be a case, it really might be a case. Everyone starts creating a YouTube channel. Yeah, you never know. No, I never know. But you, you, you didn't think of this before, right? Because I also didn't think of it until you said it. Yeah, yeah. not really. You can watch him if you want. His, his name is Techly. Okay, I'll check him yeah, out. Yeah, a bit scary. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think Maybe that's a good him. place to end. Wow, a very long episode. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, man. Okay, I saw recording. Alright, thanks for listening. Bye.
This week's episode was really fun and engaging. Both of us were thrilled to talk about the various aspects of religion and tackle some of the questions we have about life. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you have any feedback or any topic suggestions, do email us at convos.with.john at email.com. Take care.